This is InX, a show about inclusive design. I'm your host, Matt May. In this episode... Graphics were something that I received. They were not something that I requested or chose. They were curated for me by textbook publishers and other cited folks. There was never a direct path from my curiosity to an image being under my fingers. A conversation with Chansey Fleet. And now I am honored to introduce you all to Chansey Fleet. Thank you for coming in and being on the show. I am so happy to be here, Matt. Thank you. This is going to be fun. I'm going to start with your bio here. Okay. Chancey Sleet is a Brooklyn-based tech educator and activist who identifies as capital B blind. Chancey is the assistive technology coordinator at the New York Public Library. In that role, she curates accessible technology in the branch, collaborates across the New York Public Library system to improve equity of access, and coordinates a diverse team of staff and volunteers who provide one-to-one tech coaching and group workshops free of charge and open to all. Through a 2017 New York Public Library Innovation Grant, she founded and maintains a Dimensions Project, a free open lab for the exploration and creation of accessible images, models, and data representations through tactile graphics, 3D models, and non-visual approaches to coding, CAD, and visual arts. And I want to add on the land acknowledgement. OCAD University acknowledges the ancestral and traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, and the Huron-Wendat. Chansey and I are presently on the ancestral and traditional territories of the Duwamish and Coast Salish peoples and the Lenape, who are the original owners and custodians of the land on which we stand and create. So thank you again. I, I want to get started because I have so much to talk with you about. <laughs> uh, and I want to start first with just your background, how your career started, how your education came up. What's your origin story? Oh, so I'm in my late 30s now, and I was born in a tiny town in Virginia called Aylet to sighted parents who were not expecting a blind child, but who turned out to be extremely prepared to have one. Both of them are really free spirits, very creative, very driven, and enjoy problem solving. So that worked out well. They pushed me from the very beginning to make my own way in the world, to find my own ways of doing things and to set myself up for big dreams, for big self-expectations. They were also really good at telling the world to value me and include me. So just, I'll share a couple of things. When I was six years old, my my father got me a Toshiba laptop, the kind with two three and a half inch floppy disks. And I had Arctic business vision on my laptop as a child. I could write assignments and print them out right there in the classroom. And I could read notes from my parents, like the ones that parents usually put in, in kids' lunches. And I could play Zork and use a calculator and stuff like that from grade one. And I realized although probably not consciously, it was just always true for me that technology would help me do stuff without a bunch of people in the middle holding my hands and slowing me down. My mom was really instrumental in making sure that I got a quality education, including 
Braille, cane travel instruction, that kind of thing. And she taught me a lot about self-advocacy. She went to bat for me so many times and she made sure that even as a young child, I was in my own IEP meetings and that my voice was heard. And both of my parents really supported me to be an advocate and an outspoken person. And they allowed me to talk back to adults who were being ableist. My father tells this story about a time when I was like three in the grocery store, in the little cart in the grocery store, sitting in the cart. And some lady comes by and says to me, because my eyes are doing their own little dance as they will do, little girl, you better be careful. If you keep rolling your eyes like that, they'll get stuck. And I said, it wouldn't matter. I'm blind anyway. And she just <laughs> ran down the aisle. So that was the vibe in my childhood. Technology continued to play a pivotal role in my education through middle school, through high school. I went away to a school for the blind for two years and learned a sense of community for the first time there. When I was in middle school, I have a really strong memory of my computer teacher, Ms. Rinker, introducing me to an OCR machine, the Reading Edge. And one day we were snowed in for the weekend on the campus and couldn't go home. And this little lady picked up the five ten thousand dollar reading edge in her two arms and walked it out of the computer lab and across the street and into my dorm room for the weekend so that I could just sit there and read a print book and I will never forget that when I was like 10 years old my father brought me to the VCU library and I'm not sure why they let a 10-year-old child have the key to the disability accessibility lab, but he would drop me off and I would go to the desk as though I were a college student and ask for the key. They would give me the key and just let me go. And I would sit there and hang out and use the OCR tools there. I always had this excitement and joy and sense of possibility around tech. And when I got to college, I didn't have a lot of blind role models yet. I had read a couple of biographies by blind folks that went into psychology. So I majored in psychology because I didn't know what I wanted to do. But halfway through college, I started working part-time for our state agency, training other blind and visually impaired folks on how to use their tech. And I was like, wow, I like this. It's like being a therapist, but instead of problems I'm not sure if I've solved, I can deal with problems that have really concrete solutions. And it also involves working with people and helping people feel confident and empowered, but in the precise way, a measurable way. And that appealed to me. And so this became my career. When I was a freshman in college, I got hooked up with the National Federation of the Blind, which is a civil rights organization. And they drew me in, as they do, with a state scholarship. And I started finally meeting blind people that I wanted to be around and wanted to emulate. And that sealed the deal for me. I had some negative thoughts in my head about the blind community when I was a kid. And those thoughts just flew out the, the window that they opened for me when they started to introduce me to blind mentors in different fields and to do things like tell me to go meet my host family in Washington, D.C. and tell me to take three trains and not even ask whether that was going to be a problem for me. And I just loved it. I loved the, the trust that they put in me. I loved the high bar that they set for everyone in the organization. And that 
involvement and specifically my involvement in doing early testing and promotion for the first KNFB reader got me recruited to my first sort of grown-up job after college. There was a recruiter in the audience one day when I was presenting the KNFB reader. And next thing, I was flying around the country teaching federal employees with disabilities how to use their tech. And now here I am. Uh, I want to talk about where you are now because... I've actually gotten to to visit you in your library, the high school library in New York City. We got to do a tour of the Braille library. And this just fascinates me. And I think it's important for sighted people to understand what Braille libraries are and what they mean. So could you talk a little bit about just the print archives and what that means for the consumers of Braille content, how it gets distributed, et cetera? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled is part of the Library of Congress, and it's been around for almost 100 years, I believe, and has traditionally sent out Braille materials and audiobooks through the mail. These days, there's an app, the BARD, Braille and Audio Reading and Download app, where you can download BARD books on a computer and you can tune into talking books or to digital Braille books. And we still, of course, have physical audiobooks available and hard copy Braille. What's cool about the New York Public Library, Andrew Haskell Braille and Talking Book Library branch, where I work, is that in our state, the NLS cooperating library is us. So sometimes in a lot of states, regional libraries are just NLS libraries and they're totally separate from the public library. In our case, we're both. We are the NYPL and we're the NLS uh, regional library, which means that our building has a diversity of people coming into it every day. So community patrons who might not have disabilities are there to, to go to story time and use the Wi-Fi and use computer labs, pick up their holds. And then there are a bunch of blind people and visually impaired people and people with disabilities coming in to do everything from picking up books to learning about technology, attending film series, going to crossword club, going to knitting club. And so it's a really dynamic space. And one of the things I love about it is that it's an integrated space where communities of disability and the general sort of able culture collide and interact. And I find that to be really special. Another thing that's special about our branch is that in a lot of states, the Braille books specifically, because they're so uh, large and they're typically mailed out, in a lot of states, the Braille books and the audio books are in a warehouse and you call up to get them or you fill out a form to get them and they come to you by mail. But our stacks are open for Braille books in New York. And so when you walk up to the second floor, there are stacks just like there would be for a print library and you can just browse to your heart's content and pull books down and see if you want to check them out and you can skim through things. And I first visited this library when I was visiting from Virginia, again, around the age of 10 or 11. Just the fact that you could go in and choose a book and read a book and decide if it was worth taking home, that stuck with me for years. And I was so happy when I moved to New York to reconnect with the library first as a patron and then as a volunteer and now as part of the staff. There are a couple of things I want to take off from this, but I want to stay on the Braille for one second because that transition from the printed Braille world into the electronic Braille world with refreshable Braille displays and content that starts to become accessible, that itself is very powerful, but also we're not nearly where we could have been because the idea of 
the book turning into something electronic also came with all of these other things that came along like DRM or just scanning the pages of books early on to make them look like pictures of a page. And so you didn't get any of the benefit of that work that had to be done in order to braille a trade publication or a novel or whatever that was distinct bespoke work. And these books for a braille book, can you talk about if it's a 500 page printed book, what a braille version of that is like physically? It's going to be a lot larger. A bound braille book is going to be a lot larger. I had a pocket dictionary in middle school, the quote unquote pocket dictionary, which was a small paper back in print. And it was eight major notebook sized 11 and a half by 11 volumes that took up half a bookshelf. I believe the Harry Potter uh, books an average Harry Potter book might be. I don't actually want to speculate on what the exact number is, but it's larger. If Braille were print, it would be size 29. So that's going to take up a lot of space. Like a 29 point font. Yeah. A 29 point font. Exactly. So enormous. And just, just the idea of shifting these things around the country and the, the cost that's involved in, like you were saying, the, difficulty for you to browse that kind of material. You just had a catalog and you got it and you picked something out and you might wait years for the most popular things to, to come through that kind of could go away with the advent of eBooks. But instead we still have these kinds of barriers. And then there are things like the Chafee amendment, which is essentially a law that enables people to break DRM specifically for the purposes of making it available to print disabled people, which is just the fact that you had to have that just in order for books to even be remotely available, not just in the library setting, but in education still underscores how big the the gap is between print and Braille content. For me as an individual who has a considerable amount of privilege in that I've always had access to digital Braille devices since I came to college, that gap has not existed for me in large measure since the very early 2000s. And that's thanks to Jim Fruchterman and Bookshare, part of the Benetech organization. In the very early 2000s, Jim realized that blind folks all over the country and all over the world and their allies were using flatbed scanners to turn page by page through books and make their own access. I remember doing this from early college onward, and I would just get my music together or start reading a book while I was scanning it. And I might spend two or three hours to scan in a single textbook or a, a book for leisure, sometimes more. But even then, being able to do that and get a scan that was readable was another really intense memory and, and magic moment for me. I remember the first time that I OCR'd something and then sent it over to a Braille display using automatic translation. And I was what is this amount of power? I couldn't even believe my luck. But Jim realized that we could avoid that duplication of effort by banding together and we could deepen and broaden the availability of 
accessible texts for people that use digital Braille, for people that use text-to-speech audio, magnification, all kinds of ways to read a book. And this was particularly welcome for me because I love to read. I've always been a voracious reader and also somebody with esoteric interests. I have had interests over the years in speculative fiction authors that didn't ever quite make it to the NLS collection. I remember as a, a queer kid growing up in the 90s, not being able to find much representation of people like me in the NLS collections. All of that has changed a lot in the intervening years. But it was this anarchic, wonderful thing when Jim started bringing us all together so that we could upload those individual scans that each of us had done on our own for ourselves and just amplify the impact that those had. And at first, a lot of major publishers were upset. They were resistant. They were doing their best to create friction. But Jim constructed an infrastructure where piracy was taken seriously and folks using the system in abusive ways were really removed and faced actual consequences. And Jim's team and our community gradually earned the trust of major publishers to the point that now most new titles that are added to Bookshare, I believe, are submitted directly by the publisher, which means there aren't OCR errors, there aren't weird little omissions. And now we're all kind of playing on the same team and just scoring win after win for digital accessibility for folks that are blind, visually impaired, have cognitive and learning disabilities, have fine motor impairments that make it hard to hold a book. I love NLS and I love what the NLS has done for digital Braille and the blind community. But just as important is this radical idea that Jim had that we could take our individual efforts and channel them into something that would invent eventually absolutely transform the landscape for digital accessibility of books. Yeah. And I think that one thing here that's important is the idea of mutual aid and of the agency of the blind people themselves in this work that there wasn't. So Jim, who, I, as I understand it, decided it wasn't that he came into a community and just said, here, I'm going to fix it for you, that there is a community that is self-advocating and that is working on the, the solution itself and coordinates with, with other communities to, to make that happen. It has to be clear that it's a partnership and not just a bestowal of rights from exactly. sighted to blind people. Exactly. He took what we were already doing and channeled it. And there was nothing, there was no saviorism. There was no paternalism. It was just, how can we take the power you already have and make it do more? Yeah, the same thing with, we mentioned the late Jim Thatcher and the, the screen reader project that, that he had worked on that was so that he could share mathematical equations with his blind boss. These are the parts of the story that tend to be elided from the history here, that it's always in partnership with, that it's always in collaboration with, that's always for the benefit of the user that we're talking about and not like it springs forth from nowhere. Exactly. I wrote Benateca 
tongue in cheek. It was actually a compliment, but a, a quote unquote complaint letter because as a blind child and teen and young adult, I had always managed to read the entire catalog of Braille titles. And so I knew exactly what my choices were because we always had this feeling of scarcity and, and one never wanted to miss something that might be good. And I said, I'd like to register a complaint. There are too many titles and I cannot any longer keep track of everything that's available to read. And that that's making me feel so much anxiety. <laughs> that's funny. That reminds me of, I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts and there was one record store in my town and I knew everything that they had there. And then I remember going to San Francisco one time and I went to Amoeba Records and it's like a football field. I had my own existential crisis of, I am never going to spend enough time in my life to consume all of this musical content. It was yeah that exactly. feeling of just unbounded potential. Exactly. That's what it was. That's what it is. <laughs> so I want to turn this to design uh, because I don't know how you identify yourself, but I definitely think of you as a designer. And I think a lot of people just instinctually think of design as being a visual science or visual art, that it's something that has to have a visual component to it. And I know a lot of UX designers think of it that way. But I want to talk about what design means when you're blind or when you have flow vision. What is the impetus? What is the process? What are the things that you wish people knew about blindness and the lived experience of blind users when it comes to making products? So, wow. So I think part of my lived experience stems from blindness itself. So as a blind person, I benefit from elegant spatial representations that are non-visual, whether that's the quick and easy and, and very legible audiographs that are available in the health app on my iPhone, or whether that means a T-map that shows the relationships between streets and their points of intersection and their names in the most minimal, pleasing way possible. I can speak to my sensibility as a reader and lately a creator of tactile designs and other non-visual spatial representations. But the fire in me for catalyzing community work in tactile design in particular comes from having realized fairly late on in my blindness journey that I had been living in image poverty this whole time and that it was avoidable. As a young child, I got lots of Braille and I probably got more tactile graphics than most people because I got a steady supply of Braille books. So a few times a year, a picture book would show up and often I would get maps or diagrams in my textbooks. But when I say often, maybe there would be 10 graphics in my entire textbook. I don't mean that I got the same amount of images as my contemporaries were cited. And graphics were something that I received. They were not something that I requested or chose. They were curated for me by textbook publishers and other sighted folks. There was never a direct path from my curiosity to an image being under my fingers. And I came to believe that I 
was strong and my verbal abilities and pretty poor at spatial thinking, the arts, mathematics, science, all of that stuff. And I assumed a lot of things about my aptitudes and those assumptions drove my career trajectory and my studies. And I have no regrets. I love it where I am right now. But I discovered as I met the blind community during and after college, I started to discover that there were blind people who were joyful, excellent spatial thinkers who could communicate something by drawing, who could understand a map in seconds, who understood things best when they were presented spatially. Blind people who, if they were sighted, would call themselves visual learners. And I realized, oh my God, that's me. If Uh you can explain an intersection to me five times verbally, I will nod and smile and I will do my best and I will get about 40% of what you told me. If you show me a diagram of the same thing, I'm good. I've got it. It's in my brain now. And I'm going to negotiate that intersection. Um, I'm going to make my way through the streets on the map that I saw. I'm going to be able to wire up a circuit based on a diagram way more so than I can from a narrative. And I had no idea until I started meeting people at blindness conferences who were doing this on the daily and who could show me how. And so by the point that, that all this happened, I was already a tech educator when I started to really focus on tactile design, I was already at New York public library in particular, a, a blind person that was very well connected, a CEO reached out to me in 2016 and said, Hey, where can I get a five borough map? Cause I'm moving to New York and I want to understand how the boroughs interrelate to one another. And I had to say, gosh, I don't think I know how to get you an answer. And that's when I started reflecting really hardcore on why we didn't have the ability to make a straight path from an inquiry to a tactile. And I realized that as long as we don't have access to the means of production for tactile graphics, and as long as tactile graphics are something that we're handed and not something that we create, we're not going to move forward the state of spatial thinking, creativity, self-expression in our community. And it's going to remain the, the territory of a very few blind elite. And I decided that, that I wanted to spend a big chunk of my life fixing that. And so I, I started the Dimensions Project in 2017, got that CEO, their five borough map, by the way, and now anybody can come in and make tactile graphics and 3D models. And so I consider myself, if I am a designer, and see, I still make uh, make disclaimers and I need to learn to stop doing that. So although I am a designer... I am an outsider designer. I'm not someone who has that background. I'm someone who has a keen awareness of what it feels like to be missing that background. And everything that I'm doing now and everything that I'm pursuing knowledge of and everything that I'm building in my community is a response to that, that lived experience of of finding out that I had an entire part of my brain that was underutilized because I didn't have images in my life. So I can say as somebody that is 
working on my master of design projects that there's room outside of the imposter syndrome for both of us. <laughs> I'm trying so hard just to, to, to be okay with this, but here I am. I've worked in a design company for, for 15 years now. I've, I'm going through this, this program. I still struggle to call myself a designer. So I think that there's room for a lot more people who are coming up with creative solutions to things that people are dealing with every day to just say it, that this is design. And on top of that, just the things that you're doing at the library, I think when we did the inclusive design workshop, you co-facilitated the session at the library yep. and showed us some things like 3D. And I think you've done soldering projects, like you've yes. taught soldering in, there, in the, the library. And I think CAD, were you doing OpenSCAD or something for generating the 3D yeah. models? So we teach, if you're blind or working non-visually, typical CAD programs that involve rendering a rotatable 2D image on screen are not yet possible for us because the first generation of refreshable tactile graphics displays is still in development. And even when it comes to market, it's going to be initially fairly low res. And so we're left with two, two great choices that we can mix and match. We can collaborate with sighted folks and we can co-design, which is a fun thing to do. When I was in lockdown and my community partner, Claire, was in lockdown somewhere else. On the last day that the library was open in March 2020, I brought home a bunch of graphics equipment, like Apocalypse Now style, just let me carry everything I can. Mm-hmm. Um, even thinking it was going to be two weeks because I couldn't be separated from graphics for two weeks at that point. And I brought home the embosser and we'd get on the phone and talk about a graphic that we needed to design for our web development class, maybe a color wheel that's tactile that shows folks the relationships between complementary colors and maybe a tactile that shows different font types and sizes and serifs and sans and, and something that illustrates the box model. So we would talk it out and then she would jump into Adobe Illustrator and send me a draft. I would emboss the draft and then we'd get back on FaceTime and I would just point to things under the camera and say, hey, this here is great. This is really strong. Here's a place where we need a little bit more contrast with our dot heights. This is filled in and that's making it feel blurry. So let's make it a cleaner shape with white space in the middle. And it was just the most satisfying thing during a time that was pretty, pretty scary and lonely. It was such a joy to co-design with someone and bring my experience of tactile design together with her experience of graphic design and make something that hadn't been done before. So collaborating is an option that we have. And then the other option we have is doing our own design work, either using analog tools like tactile drawing tablets and 3D printing pens and other, almost anything that's an art supply that's uh, usable non-visually can be used as a design tool. But if we want to make something that's really precise, we might use code. Specifically, we might use OpenSCAD to create complex designs that are made of parametric shapes that we combine, that we rotate, that we translate, that we group and duplicate and scale. And all that can be done with a coding language that's, in my view, pretty much just as friendly as HTML. And we have been able to teach it to several cohorts of blind and sighted folks that don't have previous CAD experience and don't 
necessarily have previous code experience either. And I'm good enough to make something basic. So if you asked me to create a chess piece or a a signature guide or a, a minimal box, I could do that. Some of my students have surpassed me by leaps and bounds, which is very gratifying. I have one volunteer whose first name is Steven. If you've worked with him on OpenSCAD, you'll know him. And he can take a look at something complex, like an entire puzzle with movable parts. And he can go into OpenSCAD and recreate the thing. And he also does original designs. So there are folks in our community now that are really pushing the limits of what OpenSCAD can do for a blind designer. So that's great. And also ties into one of the core practices of inclusive design. So I want to use this to segue into the next segment. We're going to take a pause right here. I will be right back with Chansey Fleet. InX is a major research project by me, Matt May, as part of the Master of Design degree program at OCAD University in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Episodes and transcripts of this podcast can be found at inx.show. That's I-N-E-X dot show. Follow InX on Twitter at I-N-E-X podcast. And we're back with Chansey Fleet and we're going to get into inclusive design. And the question that I have been asking has been about inclusive design as a term of art versus inclusive design as whatever people think is inclusive plus whatever people think is design. And to go back to the the definition that the Inclusive Design Research Center puts forth from OCAD University, inclusive design is design that is inclusive of the full range of human diversity with respect to ability, language, culture, gender, age, and other forms of human difference. So how do you see that reflected in the world versus I guess anything that that you just hear is inclusive. Oh, that's a big question. My first response is that the ways in which people interpret and implement what they think that means create just a symphony of total chaos with a lot of unnecessary and unintended consequence generating designs and a lot of missed opportunities and occasionally some real wins. I think it comes down to the composition of that interaction of what inclusion is actually happening here. And I think in the last segment, you specifically mentioned co-design and that to me is the baseline. There is not just some level of participation, not just that you've done some user research and you've already validated everything, but you're just going to go past a group of users and say, is this good for you? But that the people that you're learning from, that you're collaborating with, you're doing from the instantiation of the idea. So this is where we get the idea of participatory action research, where the outcome isn't already there. It isn't something that's been proposed that people are discussing, but that it's almost like you have a green field. You can think of anything that could possibly be created. And that is the beginning of the relationship. And the the levels of power in that relationship are more even that it isn't just we have a researcher who is telling you all what to do and then what they do with that information is all theirs do you see that as being something that's being propagated that's being coming more popularized or is that still in the margins i think so i mentioned my friend claire earlier i met her when she was a grad student at NYU ITP, and she was doing a participatory design project and needed to find somebody to build with and for. 
and asked me what kind of problem I had to solve for myself. And I said, I'd like to solve my problem of having to plan frequently large exhibit halls that might have 30 or 40 tables. And I wanted a digital way to move them around spatially in a non-visual manner, because again, I don't do well with textual narratives. And we started playing with some potential prototype solutions to that problem. And eventually I was able to solve that particular problem in a different way, but we discovered that we had a really similar ethos and had the same kinds of thoughts about how to do actual good things in our communities with designs. And so she and I have worked together over the years on several things. One thing that I really appreciate about her and about a lot of my other collaborators that are in academia is that when they and now we are doing research, we try to create things that feel organic and that not only are participatory, but provide a real benefit to the community that is more than just the hypothetical benefit that research provides. And it's more than just a gift card. For example, we were able to do some research around that soldering workshop at NYU ITP that you mentioned by getting voluntary feedback from the participants and also self-reporting as instructors. But we didn't do structured interviews with folks that took a long time. And we were able to get those research goals met while offering an actual three-day soldering intensive that blind people and, and visually impaired people and sighted allies were excited to attend from all over the country, regardless of what we got in terms of our research, everybody learned to solder. And similarly, when Claire and I have worked together on teaching web development, JavaScript and CSS concepts to, to folks who are blind and visually impaired, we did get some research outcomes validating the worth of tactile graphics in that instructional context. But our main mission was to make sure that blind and visually impaired people had a chance to learn web development concepts. And so I really like this idea of taking it one step farther than participatory action research to creating situations where research can happen, but research is not necessarily the only thing or the main thing that's happening and that a community benefit is being created there. And that's a different way to make sure that people have power. Are you giving something to people that's worth their time? Are you opening up a meaningful experience that didn't exist before? And I'm not going to claim that the model that I believe in right now is is perfect because I think my, my thinking is always evolving and there's always more things to learn about ways to do things better and even more equitably. But I really enjoy that model. And I also enjoy being at the New York Public Library where we don't do research and having <laughs> Braille study groups and the Dimensions Lab and accessible tech education, where because we're a public library, we don't actually need you to be blind to take advantage of those opportunities. And so sometimes what will happen these days is a grad student who may or may not have a ton of inclusive design awareness or may not know about the conversation being had about participatory research, they may drop by to do some fact finding and I'll roll them right into a Braille study group with everyone else or I'll roll them into whatever everyone else is doing. And rather than me telling them 
how to do their research or that their project is headed down a terrible road, I can just shut up and introduce them to the community and let them observe how things are actually happening in the world where we live. And nine times out of 10, once they start talking to other people in that library space or just observing they will start to course correct and it doesn't have to be a big didactic thing coming from me because I have more power than an average sighted grad student in a lot of ways. If I were to say, you're doing this all wrong, that could feel very intimidating and that could probably shut somebody down. And what we don't want to do is make people feel bad or make people not want to engage in communities of disability. We want people to be mindful and observant and use common sense and build the kind of relationships that inform good design and excellent outcomes. And I think one of my favorite things about the library is that it's a place where you can just build an organic relationship with the community if you're willing to do so. I think that really improves the chances that your design will be meaningfully centered on the the lived experiences and and wisdom of people with disabilities. You actually brought up two of the kind of hallmarks of real equity in the discussion. Number one, the the workshops that you're doing. We are proposing an exchange by which we gain this information and you learn how to solder, right? Everybody is getting something and everyone has a stake in the arrangement as opposed to, as you were saying, the gift card, whatever. It's just almost a passing off of of that responsibility. Yeah, it's a gig. Uh, It's a gig. Yeah. And the the second one is where you're talking about being listened to in the room. That responsibility is born across all of the stakeholders in the discussion. I think a lot of the time the discussion of equity is mostly about money for services. And and that makes sense in terms of the stock market that obviously it's got a big connection to the term of money, but not everyone wants to be a software engineer. Not everybody wants to be a product designer. Sometimes the people want to pick up this tool because they want to get the thing done that the tool affords them. And that's it. If they want to be an artist for art's sake, they don't need to make the product and be involved in all of the decisions. Everybody has a different thing that they want to get out of it. And being able to tease out what is a fair exchange for that is also a form of equity work. Yeah. And I think that cuts both ways. If you're a sighted designer and you are self-propelled or for whatever reason, you don't have a budget and you can't engage in that gift card economy to get good answers, like maybe you can do something else. Can you, are you a good photographer? Can you take some good photos in exchange? Can you advise on something else? Can you volunteer a couple hours of your time to do a thing that somebody else needs? I think when we think about equity, it's not only about ensuring equity for people with disabilities, although that's super important. It's also ensuring that financial contribution is not the only way that folks who need our expertise and wisdom can get that need met because we can all offer different things to each other. And a lot of the meaningful projects that I've been involved in that turned out to be rewarding and generative didn't involve any financial transactions. Claire, over the years, uh, 
has written whole curriculums and volunteered a ton of her time. Another community partner, Lauren Race, who's at Twitter now, decided to make her entire master's thesis a complete flight of tactile graphics for physical computing. You can find it at tactileschematics.com. And I hope she learned a lot from us and we've become really generative colleagues in a lot of ways. But Again, she didn't need to offer funding. She offered her really unique and deep expertise and a willingness to address immediate needs that we had in our community. And I just, I want to see more of that. Yeah. And I want to juxtapose this against what I think are the, the least equitable kinds of, of arrangements. And my understanding in the blind community is that the example of this is the magic cane. What if we took the white cane? And we made it something that was technologically superior. What if we <laughs> added lasers? What if we added lasers? <laughs> what if we had the laser cane? And so many different examples of this come up over the years where you can see that they didn't think about what the cane does. And so not being a white cane user, I would like for you to explain <laughs> what the cane does that's important that if you were to if you were to explain why this thing matters in the format that it's in so that you could talk the next generation of laser cane people into doing something more productive with their lives. Oh my gosh. Yep. This is great. So among our staff and volunteers in the tech department and the back office, we always joke around, we should have a public awareness campaign. That's just the, it's a stick campaign. Why is a traditional <laughs> cane more effective? And normally you shouldn't call a white cane a stick, but we're going to make an exception here because it's literally, don't complicate it. It's a stick. Okay. What if you break it or lose it? What if you drop it down an elevator shaft or onto the subway tracks, both of which things I've done? What if you break it on something and have to put it back together with a, a splint of a pencil and duct tape? <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's a stick. It costs $30. What if it rains on it? What if you are kayaking and all kinds of sand gets in it? It's not really a big deal because it's a stick. It costs $30. You don't have to charge it. It won't track you because it's a stick. Right. You just move it back and forth and it finds things. And when you damage it, you get another one. And, and that's the part that I think is just the most fascinating to me about this, because it seems like a lot of these projects are uh, a hammer in search of a nail, right? It, it's almost like the exchange that's being offered is for you to be dependent on financially and with your own security yeah. to this company's product. Yeah. And that seems to be the opposite of what it is that we should be doing. And it boggled the mind when I first got into accessibility to find out that something like JAWS, one of the major screen readers for, you know, for, for blind and print disabled people, was $1,300. And, and with that, you got one release. You got one update which was an annual update for it. And then that was it. And that was the baseline. That was what you needed in order to use a computer, unless you wanted to use maybe Orca on Linux. This is before kind of voiceover took over on the Mac and iOS. But that idea that it costs a lot to be blind. 
in, in order just to have the baseline, like access to technology and just to, to tell a little story about the, the green room experience today, when Chansey <laughs> logged in, I think we spent at least a half an hour trying to get everything up and running. And we ran into problems with the browsers. We ran into problems with the laptop, with the Wi-Fi, with the streaming product that we're using to, to record this Zencaster. And one of the things was just getting to the buttons, the access to simply read the labels of the buttons. That's important to me because I want to talk to you. And so the arguments about this on the web accessibility side of providing equity in these arrangements is another one, which is that it's about the community and the, the connectivity and about the equanimity of the people that are working on these things together. Everything that's happening right now is about collaborative software tools. And so if you have a mixed, able, disabled population of employees, which parenthetically you do, the idea of accessibility being something that is an add-on or nice to have, or we'll do it in another release doesn't work. You can't do that. And larger companies are, are hiring product managers whose entire job it is to evaluate products that they might buy because their own employees might not be able to use them. Yeah. I want to address the consequences of digital inaccessibility a little bit, because even if you're working in digital accessibility and you're meeting people like me who are blind or disabled people in tech or tech adjacent, you're not meeting all your users and you're not seeing what I see as a tech educator. For me, you could see me getting upset in a laughing about it way when things weren't going according to plan today, but I kind of knew that I would make it to the finish line and I have made it a practice to deal with roadblocks in a way that doesn't really get to me and it doesn't get to my self image as somebody who's going to be a good problem solver and, and be happy to use digital tools. As a tech educator, I'm often working with someone who's newly blind, as in like maybe two weeks ago. And I'm often working with people that have had low vision or print reading disability or have been blind for a long time, but who don't have access to the most premium forms of assistive technology. So for example, they might not be able to afford an iPhone. They might be working on a Lifeline Android phone, which has pretty shaky support for talkback and other assistive technology features. If you have a user who is not temperamentally perfectly suited to troubleshooting as almost a hobby, a couple of things can happen. A user can very quickly develop a self-belief that they're not good at technology and that technology is frustrating and that they should avoid it whenever possible, which means that you have done something harmful in their life and you have also lost a customer. And then the other thing that can happen is that users can be frustrated by a single experience with your tech and they will never come back. I still have people telling me that some technologies that they tried five plus years ago, notably Microsoft Edge, oh, I'm never going to use that again. It was terrible. And Microsoft Edge has been totally rewritten. It's using Chromium now. It works great with screen readers now, in my view. But a bunch of users will not be back. Narrator is another one. And I'm sorry to focus on Microsoft, but I'm, I'm thinking about Microsoft. 
narrator in its first instantiation around, I believe, Windows XP had a very quiet, hard to hear voice and could only read a few things and really couldn't be used at all on the web and was pretty laborious to even use to go through basic system settings. And now Narrator has great Braille support. It's easy to use. It works out of the box. It may not be the screen reader that I would choose just yet for my primary, but it's like pretty great if I'm at a public computer or if I need to fix somebody else's machine or show a sighted person how their tech works and I I need a screen reader while I'm doing that. But there are probably thousands, tens of thousands of blind people who tried Narrator in 2003 and and aren't going to try it again. So the stakes are high and you want to get people, you want to get digital accessibility right as quickly as you can so that the first impression that you make, which may be the only impression you ever get to make, is going to be a good one. I have had my fill of this whole experiment. I think that's what you're talking about, like that if I'm tired of this, if I've reached my frustration tolerance for this, then no more. And so yeah. the and, and it, it's additive from product to product, if your experience is to be excluded, then it doesn't take 10,000 times to, to do it. It's the first time where it lines up with all of your previous experiences of exclusion to feel left out of, of that experience, which is why you have to totally. get it right as soon as possible. Exactly. And then if you are in an organization and you know that you have a legacy of impressions that you don't like the consequences of, and again, I'm going to focus on Microsoft because what I have to say right now is ultimately, I think, positive. Microsoft has done a lot in recent years to to turn impressions around. They created one of the first comprehensive disability answer desks. They integrated that with Be My Eyes. So if you're an emerging computer user and you need an app that gives you an easier way to connect with someone, you can dial in, you can do ASL. There are lots of pathways to tech support. And then they've also really been dedicating resources, not only to developing built-in assistive technologies, but to doing like pretty heavy community outreach and building advisory mechanisms so that their pivot is noticed and perhaps embraced by communities of disability. So it's not the end of the world if you're in a company that's been doing work for 30 years and you've got some legacy reputation to manage. But it does mean having a really bold and well-resourced strategy for turning that around. Great. This is a good place to pause. So we're going to to take a short break and we will have our last segment with Chansey Fleet. All right. Thank you. On the next episode of Inex. I think if you are an individual contributor and you don't believe in the work that you're doing is equitable, you don't believe that the organization itself is equitable, whatever the case may be, find a new job because you don't have the power to make the changes and you are going to create so much harm for yourself by trying to go against the grain. A conversation with Timothy Bard-Levins. And we're back with Chansey Fleet. And we're going to talk about the equitable life. You, Chansey, have your goals for how you want to live your life. What do you think equity looks like to you? What is the, the average day for, for Chansey Fleet. Things that aren't equitable to you now, what do they feel like to you in an equitable world? I dream of a world where my community 
demands and receives ubiquitous access to non-visual representations of spatial information, whether that means statistics, art pieces, images, maps, on par with what sighted people receive. I think that we've done a pretty good job as a community, as a movement, to make it clear that we all deserve equitable access to books and text and the web. But we are so behind on our access to images. And so many of us have had our aptitudes untested and untried in the arena of spatial communication and expression and understanding that we don't even have the demand necessary to generate the change that I want to see in the world. I want to light a fire of curiosity and joy and surprise and mastery in the brain of every blind and low vision person that I meet. And I want to end image poverty in our community during my lifetime. I want to take tactile design down off the pedestal and put it in every pair of hands. And I want to see that the technologies that we've had for doing spatial representation in a tactile or sonified way, the technologies that we've had for decades need to stop feeling arcane, mysterious, and above somebody's reach. They need to be for everyone, and that needs to happen pretty much immediately. So in an equitable world, I would roll into a museum and find ubiquitous 3D prints that represent the things that are behind glass that we're not allowed to touch. When I enter a subway station, I would get a quick little map that illustrates where all the platforms and turns are. When I hang out with my nephews, I, I would have access to books that we could use together as blind and sighted. And those images, not just the text, but those images would be accessible. And as a consequence of all that, blind people who think they're bad travelers would find out that they're spatial learners and they're good travelers. And blind people who think that they're bad at math and science would find out that they just needed to experience these things in a different way. And there are people that don't prefer spatial communication, and I get that. It's not for everyone, but the opportunity is for everyone. That's got to happen. And then I guess the other thing that I really think about in terms of how I want to protect and defend my own equity is that I don't just want to be included. Inclusion is a low bar. I want to be respected. I want to be asked for my consent and preferences. And I want to be relied on to be a trusted contributor. So that can mean something as simple as today I was in a waiting room and, and reapproaching my chair that I'd been sitting in earlier. And somebody reached out and touched my arm to guide me. And I was like, oh, we don't have consent. And right. that changed the conversation to something that she was familiar with. We had a nice exchange about it. And I was like, oh, no worries. I just, in an ideal world, an equitable world, somebody that's just been informed about a boundary in a friendly way isn't going to get upset. And I'm not going to be afraid of retaliation. And we're going to do the the emotional work that we do in that moment to make it all good and move on, which is exactly what happened today, but it's not always. Equity in the cultural context also means that people will ask me for as much as they want to give me, that they will come to me for help, that they will come to me for skills and perspective. And happily, that happens a lot at the library more and more. 
But I think we have to get past this idea that blind and disabled people are going to be the recipients of design or of anything else that takes skill and talent because we have an amazing amount of talent and resilience and so much to offer. But at this point in my life, being in a a job that I love in a context that makes sense to me and having the tools that I need and, and, and finally feeling like I've figured out what my worth is in this world, it becomes my next project and a pretty high priority for me to think about whether I'm providing the most equitable and welcoming experiences to other people. And so that means realizing that as a blind woman, I know one lived experience of blindness and I don't actually know what it's like to be newly blind and navigate competing priorities. And that means I need to listen in spaces sometimes more than I talk, even though my career has rewarded me for talking. It's time for me to step back now and let other folks tell me about their accessibility needs, their preferences, their dreams, the support they need, and for me to resist the urge to tell anyone how to do blindness and to just present options. And I think as we grow in the organized blind movement and in communities of disability, a certain generosity of spirit where we know that we don't actually have all the answers and that we are not a one-way wisdom dispenser either that's that's going to be the next step so so many quotes from just from just my ability to talk has, has <laughs> helped has, has helped my career greatly yeah and the idea of listening i i continue to be humble just by hosting this show but the what you were talking about there what the blind community has to give kind of reminds me of this other thing that i learned fairly early in in my career the guy that that, that taught me this word, William Loughborough. And he he talked about blindlessness, what you lose by not being blind, which flips the script, I think, for a lot of other people. In the deaf community, they talk about deaf gain. These are the things that are, deaf people are good at by virtue of being deaf. And I wonder if you have any of those, if that resonates with you, are there things that you think that, that sighted people can learn and I know that you talk, you just talked about this is my lived experience and that there are others, but collectively, what is it about blindness that you think sighted people need to know or could learn for themselves? Speaking from my experience, I think having any disability that surfaces itself when you're interacting with spaces and people and technology has the potential to make you a really resilient problem solver and good at anything that demands improvisation. And I've certainly found that to be true in my life and in a lot of the people that I admire and am in community with. And there are a lot of ways to get that gain, but blindness is definitely one of them. Being able to communicate complicated things through narrative, noticing patterns in your environment. So for example, noticing terrain changes, sounds, the openness or closeness of a space and building a rich spatial understanding of of where something is without having a visual context. I think that's probably pretty powerful. And then particularly as someone who 
centers my career and my life around community building. In the broader world, there are a lot of things that are really hard and scary and seem unsolvable right now. So we all have opinions about how the pandemic's being managed and we all worry about politics no matter what side we're on. And it can feel like everything is so big and terrible. And ever since I've been in the organized blind movement, ever since 2001, I've been able to take on issues directly and really noticed that I was able to help solve a problem. So I remember going to Congress and advocating for the Help America Vote Act. And then we got accessible voting machines. I, I came to the library as a volunteer and said, hey, let's start a tech education program. And I, then I got hired and then I made the Dimensions Lab. And now we're, we've got a lot of momentum. And like I did that with a couple of my friends. That happened. Just the, uh, the sense of agency in a scary world that there are things that we can see and improve and maintain and care for really helps me feel good about my time and my life in a way that I think, and again, there's a lot of ways to get there. There are a lot of ways that, that non-disabled people can find that joy in, in community and joy in the maintenance and care of the infrastructures that make life better. But blindness was certainly a very efficient way to get there. And I'm not sure that I would feel the same way about my career and, and whatever my contributions end up being and such gratitude for the the support that I've received if I weren't in this community. It basically feels like being, even though I'm in New York City, blindness feels like a small town. And I find that very comforting. Great. So one last question. Yeah. Who do you think is doing good work? Who should we be paying attention to? What things do you want to highlight? Oh my gosh, so many people. For one thing, check me out on Twitter because I'm always shouting out good stuff and sometimes dragging bad design. So both things can be found on my Twitter. I'm at Chancy Fleet. Oh gosh, I'm in awe of the work that's being done by the San Francisco Lighthouse for the blind and visually impaired. I'm a bit biased because a couple years ago I did join the board. So they do immersion training for newly blind adults. They've designed a beautiful building that embraces and highlights the strength of blind perception in some phenomenal ways. So, for example, in the boardroom, there's a microphone system that amplifies everybody but doesn't lose the directionality. So, you know where somebody is sitting in relation to yourself. There's the design is done by the building was designed by Chris Downey, who's a blind architect. And so there are tons of just like little touches and features, everything from lighting to accommodate every conceivable type of vision to textures that are subtle and beautiful and rich and help you orient to where you are in the building. So there's a central sort of granite pathway. That's the way that you circulate through different sections. And I, the, the acoustics have been been handled with love and care. You can go up to the Enchanted Hills camp and, and everything is accessible, but also just beautiful and natural and ambitious things are happening up there, like STEM camps and music camps and those immersions. So I always look to the Lighthouse when I think about what I hope for my own work. The Lighthouse hosts TMAP, which is uh, a way to 
use OpenStreetMap data to create tactile maps on demand. That was invented by Dr. Josh Mealy, who's definitely somebody to watch. And now the impact of that work is being amplified by Lighthouse. We make T-maps available at the library if you want to check them out. During the pandemic, I was tremendously happy to introduce the work of Ed Summers, who works for SAS and has developed the SAS Graphics Accelerator tool. It's a Chrome extension that lets you bring in CSV data and turn it into rich, explorable, sonified data sets. So when we were worried about COVID stats in a pretty intense way in March 2020, I was able to bring that free technology to our library patrons and reach over 100 people and show everybody. We know that a lot of the data visualizations about COVID right now aren't accessible, but here's what you can do. There is a way. And I could just mention hundreds more, hundreds more people I've already shouted out. Lauren, Claire, two of my community partners that are doing amazing things. But I think... Just generally, during the pandemic and because of our new willingness to try things out in a virtual context, I found out that there are more blind and sighted people quietly doing novel, groundbreaking, welcoming, joyful stuff than I could even imagine. It turns out that we've got a pretty deep bench for innovation in the community. And I would just say, use your social media if you're comfortable doing that. Pop in on free virtual events. Do what you can to find out about what's going on in corners of the disability world that you're not directly connected to because there's so much out there and you can never shout out the best work because there is an abundance of awesome work being done. Chancy Fleet. As always, it is a pleasure. I'm so glad that I had a chance to to talk with you today. So thank you. All right. Thank you, Matt. This has all been great. <laughs> That's our show. Show notes and transcripts for all NX episodes are available at nx.show. That's I-N-E-X dot show. All episodes are released under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Thanks for listening. <laughs>